You're listening to Hands-On Security, Hunter's Hands-On Security Podcast, cybersecurity of close and practical. Hello, everyone. I'm Dvir Sayag, and welcome to the 10th episode of Hands-On Security Podcast. This is very exciting because it's the last episode of the season. It's the like literally the end of the season. And for this special episode, I'm hosting Amitai from Sentinel-1. Uh, Amitai is a, a great threat researcher in the Sentinel-1 Threat Intelligence Group. Uh, so in this episode, we are going to talk about the Black Shadow Extortion Group, uh, discuss the way they operate and give examples of their attacks. Uh, how are you, Amitai? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, great to be here. It's uh, like very cozy here and it's <laughs> rainy outside. So yeah. yeah, it's fun to be in the studio. Um, let's jump just like into the subject. First of all, just tell me what is your role when you are researching the, the threat extortion group and then just like give a quick overview of them. Okay. Uh, so first of all, I introduce like myself a little bit. Uh, the moment I work at the Sentinel-1 Threat Intelligence Group as a threat researcher, where I usually deal with uh, regional threats, uh, Iranians uh, mostly. Uh, in the past, I've been part of Signia, uh, uh, which is an incident response uh, services uh, company. I was part of their incident response and threat uh, hunting team. And prior to that, I was uh, in the IDF, like many other Israelis. <laughs> so yeah, one of uh, the most interesting uh, topics that I researched uh, lately uh, was Agrius, which is how we call the group behind the Black Shadow operations. It's a group. Why Agrius? Why Agrius? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question because it's cool. Oh, okay. there is no reason. <laughs> no, actually, so I, uh, there's no idea behind Agrius. Just no, no, yeah. and actually, like it's the only group that I named after a mythical creature, so it's just a standalone name right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so tell us about them. Okay, so uh, everything started around uh, December 2020 uh, with a series of uh, extortion attacks carried out against Israeli organizations uh, by a threat group that referred to itself as Black Shadow. Uh, Black Shadow presented themselves as a financially motivated group. Although it does, uh, did seem weird at the time because of two things, two main things. Wait, so they, when they presented themselves, it was like on a website or by email? Most of their, uh, their communication channels with their victims is Telegram, mm-hmm. which they opened like public channels. They also opened a Twitter account. Uh, they contacted journalists. Uh, this is one of the weird things about them that they're very, craving for media attention. That's one of the things that uh, characterizes them. I guess that we will get to it after, but maybe their main goal is not only money. Yeah, it's not not only money, it's not money at all. It's like they're mostly interested in the effect that their attacks are causing. That's why they're probably interested in uh, media attention. And other than that, they're also very much focused on Israel, for which doesn't make any sense for any financially motivated actor. And when we take those two things together, uh, we realize that there is something fishy about this operation, that it's not really financially motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to give them credit, by the way, because they're quite good at it. There were a lot of uh, uh, ransomware as a disruption tool groups operating in Israel, like Pay2Key and others. Uh, but Black Shadow really made a lot of noise, a lot of fuzz, drew a lot of attention 
from both the media, Israeli public, and threat researchers alike. And that got us to start and take a deeper look into what's going on there, uh, who is behind it, and uh, what are their real motivations. How did this story get into the public, to the media? Not quite sure. Like uh, the, the first uh, major incident was the Sherbet incident, which is a very large Israeli insurance company. Uh, if you'll go around and ask people in Israel about the Sherbet incidents, I guess uh, a lot of people will know it even if they're not really into cybersecurity because it made a lot of noise. And ever since then, they're trying to uh, recreate their success in the Sherbet incident, mm-hmm. even though they're not really making as much noise as they used to do back then. Mm-hmm. But when we looked at those incidents, we realized that Black Shadow is just uh, an extortion alliance used by a threat group that has been operating uh, around the Middle East for a much longer period of time that went mostly unnoticed, uh, that we call Agrius, and we believe that he's operating both uh, in Israel and in other countries in the region. Like what? Did uh, you see any examples of the attacks not in Israel? Yes, so uh, we are seeing them operating a lot in the United Arab Emirates, like both on the espionage level, like long maintaining persistence, accelerating information, and both on the disruptive side, carrying out uh, ransomware attacks. So like they're doing what they're doing in Israel under the Black Shadow Alliance, also in other countries in uh, in the Middle East, using different alliances. Uh, so if we'll take a look like at Agrius as a group, then Black Shadow is just one subset of their activity, while they do have other extortion alliances used both in Israel and in uh, the United Arab Emirates, for example. Yeah, so I just want to say that for the listeners from the US, probably, this is a great example of how to deal with this kind of group. So even if they are not attacking in the United States, there is a lot of, to learn uh, when you deal with this kind of group. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Agrius, uh, like Dvir said, is, is just one of many Iranian threat groups that uh, deploy ransomware. Uh, as some sort of disruptive tool. Not all of them operate uh, exclusively in the Middle East. Some of them also work in the United States. Yeah, so I think that we can go back to Shibit. Um, maybe can you elaborate about the timeline of the attack, uh, the extortion? Yeah, so Shibit started off as a classical extortion incident with uh, the attackers approaching the victim, asking them for ransom in Bitcoin. Although there was something a bit off there, most of the communication was carried out in public channels. Uh, they started leaking information from the network in a very slow pace, releasing information piece by piece. Mostly, what kind of information? Do you know? So mostly like uh, personal information of Israelis, like uh, IDs, uh, insurance documents, stuff like that. And when they did it, they also approached journalists and media outlets. There were actually some people that interviewed the attackers, which is very unusual in the context of uh, a ransomware attack. And it's uh, quite interesting to see how invested they were in Shiribit, like a classical ransomware group or ransomware uh, syndicate probably operates ransomware attacks against several uh, organizations and at once they're not very invested in each one of their organizations. It's a way to make money. But those guys were very much invested in Shiribit. That's what like they did for days and they uh, put a lot of effort, not just in the technical breach into the network and the exfiltration, but also in the extortion and the leaking of public information from Shieldbit. Yes. So from my experience with this kind of groups, I know that when you try to get to the media, you need to do something that will attract attention. So when they try to get information about Israelis, it's because they want the 
the public, they want uh, the media, they want the journalists to actually have interest in them and to publish it. And then if they, if the public doesn't know, it literally didn't happen. So uh, you can see it as clear as like they can do it. Yeah. Uh, imagine like being just a random person and then suddenly someone leaks your ID or your information and you automatically panic. Yes, so with a story, <laughs> as we said before. Um, but if we, if we want to like, uh, look at them at a technical point of view, what kind of TTPs are they mostly using? Do they use a specific malware? Does it have special characteristics? So Agrius has quite a unique uh, modus operandi. Uh, also they have the custom uh, toolset that they use. Most of the reparations start by exploiting uh, public-facing applications, mostly web servers, which is quite interesting. We don't see them uh, engage in phishing. They're into minimum user interaction. Uh, it is important to know, though, we haven't uh, observed them using any zero days or anything of that sort, mostly one day's uh, exploits. They're very fond of uh, Fortinet vulnerabilities and also exchange vulnerabilities lately. Can you explain a little bit about the Fortinet vulnerability? Yeah, so they're very fond of exploiting the Fortinet VPN product. Uh, there was this uh, specific uh, CVE that they used that uh, allowed them to uh, actually like exploit the public-facing VPN interface and get access to the network mm-hmm. uh, to some extent. Uh, those kind of attacks have minimum user interactions, so they're less likely to be detected like, unlike phishing uh, attacks and stuff. When they... Uh, successfully exploit a public-facing application, which is a web server, for example, they deploy a web shell. The web shells are quite unique, actually. There are variations of ASPXPy, which is a very uh, known, common web shell used by a variety of threat actors, but they do their own modifications to it. So they download it somewhere or buy it somewhere and then they modify it? Yeah. Like uh, if you look at the sort of the code of the the web shells, you'll see that it's pretty much the same. They mostly change variable names. They add a little bit of obfuscation, but the basic functionality is the same. One thing that they do that is interesting is that uh, ASPXPy is a very large, comprehensive web shells web shell with a lot of functionality. And what they do is actually take chunks of it and make smaller web shells that uh, use each functionality according to. To the necessity of the attacker at the moment like if it needs to run a, a command for example it will take only the snippet from the web shell that is responsible for command line the execution mm-hmm. and uh, deploy that uh, also they have a version to upload the file and like when you take chunks of the web shell each time the the it's less likely to be detected because it's smaller it's uh it's a less known ttp or this is like something that they use and we don't see it anywhere else So I haven't, like, a lot of threat actors use ASPXPy. The usage of, like, specific functionalities and the chunking to smaller web shells is something that I think is quite unique to them, but it's not, like, something novel or new. It's yeah. just, like, uh, yeah. I don't know, the way they decided to operate. Mm-hmm. But it is quite unique in the context of uh, us being able to pivot off these uh, web shells that we've seen uh, to find additional web shells. So when we like search for additional web shells uh, with similar characteristics, which are like chunked and have specific obfuscation and specific variable names, we came across a lot of other web shells, almost all of them uploaded from the Middle East, like countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab mm-hmm. Emirates, Israel, Iran, 
which uh, indicates a clear regional focus around the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Pakistan is a country of interest to them, which uh, aligns in general uh, with uh, the interest of, uh, of an Iranian uh, threat group. And this is like one of the first indications that we get that this is not just like a financially motivated group, but a group that is focused around the region. And do we see them moving on uh, in the network, like the lateral movement? Yeah, so the way they do lateral movement uh, is quite generic, actually. Like they have their own specific uh, paths and uh, file names that they use, but they use like uh, common tools such as the PSExec for lateral movement. They also use Proctum for credential harvesting. Nothing very much uh, special about how they operate in the network, but it uh, it works. Like they know what they're doing. They're quite good at it. Uh, but they don't use like uh, any very any sophisticated methods to move laterally or anything like that. But when they do reach to a host of interest, they deploy a custom backdoor that they developed uh, that it's called IPsec helper. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it mostly installed on uh, domain controllers. Uh, it's pretty much uh, a basic backdoor in the way it operates. It retrieves commands from uh, command and control servers. Over an HTTP channel, uh, but it is quite well maintained. Like it does seem to have been developed for a lot of time. When we see it in the current wave of like black shadow incidents in Israel, we see that there is an internal version on it, like 2.15.5. So that's a clear indication that there are like older versions that went unnoticed for quite a long time. But I guess that you did release uh, an IOC list that yeah people can. Block. Of course. When we got like the first samples of the IPsec helper, we obviously tried to find older variants and like one of them actually popped up on VT that was uploaded in like 2019. It has like the internal version 1.5. So, and we believe like the compilation time step on that specific sample is quite authentic. Mm-hmm. So we believe that IPsec helper has been around for at least uh, two years now. And uh, like the incidents in Israel and the black shadow ones are were just like I guess they were they felt comfortable like burning it or getting yeah. rid of it because maybe they have additional tool sets and that's uh, the reason it was exposed is because those incidents were very loud they drew a lot of attention obviously when someone gets a ransomware attack then their network is being yeah. uh, analyzed and researched into so that's uh, where they found it but it was active throughout the region uh, for quite a long time. Can you offer any detection methods uh, that people can uh, implement when they are dealing with this kind of actor? Yeah, so general network hygiene methods are very recommended uh, always. Mm-hmm. Um, always patching? <laughs> yeah, like patching is obviously always the answer to pretty much anything. Like I said, Agrius uses mostly one-day vulnerabilities and exploits. So just patching your uh, public-facing applications would be very much effective in uh, at least delaying them or stopping them completely. When it comes to lateral movement, then uh, monitoring for tools such as PSExec and executions of ProgDump is uh, very much helpful in the context of Agrius, and not just Agrius. A lot of other threat actors use those tools, both uh, financially motivated ones and nation uh, sponsored group and in the context of the IPsec caliber as a backdoor then suspicious services are always something to look for this backdoor registers itself as a service what and about the the ransomware itself the yeah so the ransomware itself is a, is a good point because that's what you would expect a financially motivated group to deploy yeah but uh, during the black shadow incidents 
Greece did not deploy a ransomware. <laughs> wow. They, <laughs> they actually, a ransomware attack without a ransomware. Yeah, that sounds a bit weird. And when you, you look into what happened, you can actually see that they deploy wipers, which are like destructive tools uh, only made uh, to completely destroy your computer. Not a thing you want uh, lying around your network. They use two of them, actually. One of them is called Deadwood, which was actually deployed in the past against a target in Saudi Arabia in 2019. That's also an interesting fact in the context of attribution because Deadwood was attributed to Iran in the past during uh, 2018. And the version that they used is an updated version of the version that uh, was used in the attacks in 2019, indicating mm-hmm. that they have access to the code itself. They're not like just, I don't know, downloaded it from anywhere or something yeah. like that. And they also used another wiper, which was uh, not very much uh, successful in its work. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, quite badly written. Like, it seemed like two guys were sitting in the room and were like, yeah, let's write a wiper, let's take chunks of code from the IPsec helper and just make something work. And they wrote it, like, really quickly. And they didn't do it uh, quite well because uh, it, the way it searches for files to wipe has some sort of logic flaws which makes it uh not work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is funny because it's actually a ransomware group that doesn't deploy a ransomware. And if they are financially motivated as the other ransomware groups, you would realize that they would extortion make the extortion with the ransomware uh, payload. But we can see now that, as we said before, they are probably not financially motivated. With this, uh, with this yeah. example. The thing is, they did try to look financially motivated that as we monitor their activity, we actually came across a version of this wiper that was turned into a, an actual ransomware. So like in current Agrius events where they deploy a postal, it is really a ransomware. So their intrusions will look more credible. Mm-hmm. So how would you, how would you seal this, uh, use case, this, uh, shape it use case with a sentence? Just give me a sentence that you seal it with. Sentence is quite hard. <laughs> I wasn't prepared. Um, I think this is a clear indication that state sponsored threat actors use ransomware as a disruptive tool because that's not one sentence, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's because we can see the evolution from the wiper that was deployed in Israeli organizations to the ransomware that was deployed in the United Arab Emirates and later on in Israel as well. So that's like, for me, a clear proof that the ransomware is used as a disruptive tool. I agree. And I think that uh, it's a good uh, sentence to finish with because now our listeners can understand that maybe when they are dealing with this kind of threat, they don't need to pay or maybe uh, the, the threat actor that actually attacks them has other interests. So maybe it's time to to go to someone, to a specialist about this kind of subject. Uh, But I actually want to take a step back. You and your company, uh, you have a lot of research history and uh, your threat intelligence methods and uh, tools uh, are amazing. So I want you to give us a little bit of that. Um, What are the research steps that you take when you start investigating a group? Any specific tools that you use? Uh, Yes, so... Like there is this uh, intelligence cycle, which is uh, used in uh, in intelligence in general and is also applicable to threat intelligence uh, that starts by planning. Uh, why are you doing your research to begin with? That's a very important point. 
whether it is to find intrusion in your network, whether it is to improve detection. Uh, it has could be a lot of things, but you need to know why you're looking into what you're looking in order to start. Uh, following that, I would say a collection, trying to find as much information possible about what you're looking at from public information and uh, so on. There are a lot of good tools to do that. As, uh, nowadays, there's MISP, which is like the malware information sharing platform, an open source platform that is used to share IOCs. There's Open Threat Exchange by Ellenvolt, uh, pretty much the same concept. Also OpenCTI, uh, a lot of tools out there that helps us uh, gather information already available to the public about the threats that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Following that, I would uh, start by like processing the information that you just gathered, trying to leverage the data you just collected to gain additional insights or information about what you just got. So for files, this is where VT comes uh, to the picture. Yeah, like VirusTotal is obviously a very useful tool for uh, threat researchers, incident response, everything pretty much. It's like a dictionary for files, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so a lot of time VT is very helpful, very a lot of fun as well. I also I personally like Intezer. They uh, a lot of time categorize like binaries and help you understand attribution in the context of who, what group is behind it or what other files it's similar to, uh, which VT doesn't always offer. And what about infrastructure analysis? So uh, for infrastructure, uh, there are a lot of sources nowadays as well. Uh, when it comes to passive DNS, who is records and scanning data, there are a lot of possibilities. Uh, Census, uh, Shodan, Binary Edge are very good sources for scanning information. If you're into passive DNS and who is uh, information, that's also on VT, by the way. Uh, but other tools include RiskIQ and Domain Tool, which are very, very much uh, good to look at, yeah. in my opinion. And also, like, each organization has its own sources, and that's pretty much what makes the research unique, whether it is telemetry or uh, information from your network, that's that's always something to put into your research and look at, because that gives your own perspective, which others can't get. Amazing. Thank you so much uh, for sharing this kind of knowledge that you have, and sharing about Tribit and about... Uh, uh, specifically the Black Shadow Extortion Group. Uh, it was uh, really fun having you here. Uh, so guys, please follow uh, Amitai on Twitter. What's your Twitter tag? Uh, so uh, my Twitter handle is Amitai, A-M-I-T-A-I-B-S-3. Amazing. So thank you very much, everyone. And until next time. This was Hands-On Security. Everything you need to know about cybersecurity, up close and practical. הופק על ידי פיקאסט co.il, מבשלת פודקאסט ישראלית.